Let's take our Bibles and see what the Lord teaches us this morning while we go to 1 Corinthians. First, I'm sorry, 1 Kings. 1 Kings, total different section. 1 Kings chapter 21. While you're turning there, as we mentioned already, if you do not have the sermon notes, the ushers will move by. Just raise your hand, they'll hand that to you. As we get into 1 Kings, as we continue in a series on the life of Elijah, there was a gentleman over in the Jersey area. This is close to the beginning of the 1900s. This fellow lived in this neighborhood for years. His name, as you can see, is Manuel Nagger. What happened one day, he went into the grocery store, the local, uh, the local store that had everything, and he bought his groceries, came up to the counter, and the woman whose family owned the place, she was working on cutting some vegetables in the, behind the counter. Her hands were a little bit wet, and he handed her a $20 bill. That was a lot of money at that point. She grabbed the 20 and she noticed that when she grabbed it and kind of smiled and put it down by the, the drawer there, that the ink kind of smeared a little bit because her hands were wet. And she's thinking to herself, this can't be. I've known this man for 15 years. He's such a nice guy. He's been in the neighborhood. There's no way he's passing on counterfeit money. But it bothered her. She uh, thought about it, thought about it. So the next day she went to the, uh, the local police department and said, I, you know, I'm sure he isn't doing anything, but does this look like counterfeit? They checked it out. Sure enough, it was counterfeit money. And in order to track it down, they went to his house. And when the police went there just to ask questions, he ended up confessing to them that what he had been doing is he had been making counterfeit 20s and 50s for several years now. They searched the house with his permission. They found up to $1,000 worth of bills that he had been making, 20s and 50s. And the irony was that he was painting each one by hand. He hadn't had any kind of device to do duplication, but he was a good artist. And so he was painting each one of those 20s and 50s by hand. So in order to pay his legal expenses, what he had to do was sell pretty much everything. There was three paintings that he had painted. And he'd done it in his spare time when he said, when he was making the money. He did these three paintings in spare time. They sold for $16,000. This man was painting these dollar bill, these bills, and he had more money in the paintings. He stole his own future, ending up in prison for a period of time. This morning I want to talk about an individual found, actually two individuals, found in 1 Kings who robbed from themselves. Now, they robbed from others, but they really stole from themselves. The story is 1 Kings 21. The setting is of talking about the King Ahab and his beautiful bride Jezebel, the one that we so admire nobody calls their daughter Jezebel because of her wickedness. If you go through her story, you go through their story. We've talked about it. So those of you visiting with us this morning, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and kind of just jump through some thoughts because we've looked at these passages. Our folk will remember that they were considered the most wicked monarchs up to that period of time in Israel's history. She was a Phoenician princess. She was a priestess back in her father's homeland for the god Baal. We also know that he was a Jew he his nationality, but he didn't follow the religions of the Jews. He was following his wife's religion. We know that they had tried to convince and persuade the nation of Israel to go after Baal worship. They had killed many of the prophets. In fact, there was 150 prophets that were left in hiding that were the only ones that had survived, and that is because they went into the caves that were provided for other, by Obadiah and others for their protection. And as a result, a lot of the nation of Israel was in a lot of conflict. And God had challenged them by sending to them a prophet to say, you need to stop. That prophet was Elijah. 
And so in 1 Kings 21, we, uh, we find that these people didn't stop their wicked ways. Even though they had encountered the prophet of Elijah before, even though God had shown his greatness about 10 years before chapter 21 is when God had that contest designed between the prophets of Baal and Jehovah God. The prophets of Baal were represented by, uh, were representing Baal and Elijah was representing God. We know this story. We talked about it. How they went all day long, but then God sending fire in response to Elijah's prayer sent the fire from heaven and the people as a nation that were gathered below, down in the valley. They said, Jehovah is our God. They killed the prophets of Baal. But then Jezebel sends a note saying, I'm going to take your life, Elijah. He flees in fear. And the whole revival collapses. That's about 10 years ago. Here he was in the wilderness and God said, you need to find a friend. We talked about that last week. That's 10 years ago. Now, since that time, Elijah with his friend Elisha have been going through the region They've been undercover, if you would, but they've been let alone by Jezebel. She never bothered them after that because his influence had been basically broken. Because he, was, he had given up that revival, and so they haven't been a threat. But Jezebel and Ahab have continued their wicked ways. In fact, when we come to chapter 21, what's been going on is the land has had time to recover from that drought that God had sent for three and a half years back in chapter 16, back in chapter 17. The land has become fertile once again. As we go through this story, in chapter 20, Ahab has been out fighting wars against invaders. And he was told by God, I'll give you phenomenal victories. And God gave him some interesting victories despite his lack of following after the Lord. God's commitment to his promise to the people of Israel, God has helped him in battles. Even though he hasn't done what God told him to do. And that's where chapter 20 ends up. Chapter 20 ends up with a prophet coming to him and saying, you didn't follow what God said when you were fighting against the enemies. You were supposed to wipe out Ben-Hadad, but you kept him as a trophy. You made an alliance with him and God is displeased with you. That is where chapter 21 opens up. That, that Ahab has been rebuked once again by a prophet of God. It wasn't Elijah, it was somebody else. He's won some battles. He's tired. So he goes on vacation to one of his northern palaces up in the area of Jezreel. Jezreel is a plush area. It's beautiful. And when he gets there, he's relaxing, he's resting, he's doing his winter break, his summer break, whatever the season is. And he's taking in some of the countryside from what we understand from some from excavations that his palace was looking down on this valley and he probably looked over the walls and he saw a beautiful, fruitful vineyard that he wanted to have. If you read the first few verses, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, it talks about how he's so enthralled with that vineyard over there that he goes and he says to the man who owns it, I want this because I want to make it a vegetable garden. Now we know he's really sick. He wants to raise pure vegetables. You know, get rid of the vineyard. He wants to have vegetables there. And so he goes to the man who owns it, whose name is Naboth. And he says, Naboth, I will buy this for a good amount of money. Or I'll give you another piece of land somewhere else. The bottom line is, Ahab doesn't need that vineyard. He doesn't need it because he's got other vineyards. He's got other land that he can give to Naboth. The idea is that he doesn't need it to provide for his own income. He's got enough money to pay a good price. He's got enough other vineyards to satisfy. He is coveting and falling into that sin of covetousness where he really wants that one. 
It's not, your kids probably never did this, but when we would go in stores, my kids' vocabulary would change. They would say, I need that. I need that. I need that. They didn't need it. They just plain wanted it really bad because it's something, y'all, they saw it. Now they wanted it really bad. That's, that's what's happening here. Ahab really wants it badly. Even though he has others, even though he can, he can buy others, he, he can get all the fruit he wants. He can get all you know, the grapes. He, he wants that one. And so when he makes the proposal, the story says that Naboth responds, the Lord forbid it. Look at the verse. Look at verse 3. The Lord forbid that I should discard, get rid of, sell this piece of property. What does he mean by that? Naboth is a man of the word. Naboth is thinking back to what he has learned in his, in his schooling system, what he has been taught by the different religious leaders. He remembers that according to Numbers 36, that it says, So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel move from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep to himself the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Okay, he's not supposed to sell it to somebody of a different tribe. But even more than that, he understands that the idea is that the land shall not be sold forever. If your brother waxes poor and he sells away the the possessions, if any of his kindred, any of his relatives, they come by, they should redeem it. What is the idea here? You don't sell your inheritance. You don't give up what God has given to your clan, to your family. And, and Naboth is in righteousness saying to the king who could make him who it could make him money, the king could intimidate him. He says to the king, no, absolutely not. I don't want it. Ahab's response. You read in verse 4. Ahab is upset. He doesn't, just like, just like now, your kids never did this, but was I, when I was in a store and they said, I need, I would say, that's not the way you, you phrase it. You want. And they'd say, okay, I want it. May I please have it? No. Okay. So the answer was going to be the same either way. And sometimes your kids would never do this, but my kids would pout. And they would be grumpy because they didn't get what they wanted. So here we have the big kid who is old enough to know better. He pouts. Look at verse 4. It says that he goes back to the palace and he is heavy and displeased. He is grumpy. He's angry. He's sullen. He's got the poochie lip disease. Whatever you want to call it. He throws himself on his bed, it says, and turns to the wall. And then he gets so frustrated he refuses to eat. Because I want that vineyard. And he is now, he's, he's just in, a, in his pure tantrum. Into the bedroom walks his beloved, Jezebel. Jezebel walks in and she basically says, Honey, I'll take care of it. Now, she asks a question, first of all. She asks a question of him. You know, he, she's asking him, You as the king, you can do whatever you want. Now, that tells you her mindset. Right? Keep that in mind. She thinks that as the king, he's in total authority and can do whatever he wants. Why hasn't he taken the vineyard? Why hasn't he done that? I think, now I'm going to project this on it. Ahab's, what's his nationality? He's Jewish. Does he, knew, does he know customs and laws? He does. He does. Does he have any semblance whatsoever? Even though, even though he's not done right, does he have a fear of the Lord? Remember, he's just been verbally spanked by God in chapter 20 for not listening to the Lord. And here he's hesitant because he just heard from somebody how you're, you're going to be destroyed down the road because you didn't do what I said in battle. 
And so he's hesitant to take the property. He could do it legally in some maneuverings. He could do it because if he thought he was a sole authority, but he's hesitant. His wife isn't. She's more bold and brazen. But he has some semblance of respect. Even though he's not following it, there's a little vestige of a fear of the Lord in his mind and in his heart. So what happens is Jezebel decides, I'm going to get the vineyard. Keep on reading. Look at the next few verses. She sends letters. She sends letters to the leaders of the town that's nearby, Jezreel. She sends it to the elders of Jezreel, it says. And she signs somebody's name. Did you catch it? She signs Ahab's name. So this is coming from the king. And in the letter that she sends to the leadership, she tells them what she wants them to do. She orders the elders, as you read in the passage, she wrote in verse 8, sealed the letters, sent with his seal, sent the letters unto the elders that in the same city that Naboth lived. And here's what she said, proclaim a fast. Set Naboth on high among the people. Okay, let's stop. Let's remember. A fast at this time in Jewish history. A fast was called. This wasn't a feast. This was a fast. Fasting was used when you wanted to know, God, is there any sin amongst us? God, is there any impurity? It is a religious action. There is religiosity involved. She is using Jewish religion and rituals to propagate what she wants. Isn't it amazing how some people will become religious when it's convenient? And she's manipulating here. So she calls this fast, this time of repentance, and it's going to, when it says, put Naboth up in front, this isn't the idea of elevate him and honor him. This is a different idea. This is the idea is he's going to be the one found out. He's going to be the one that we suspect has sin. And therefore, we've got problems coming against us. Because Naboth is guilty, is her implication. And she says, what you need to do is have two sons of Belial, two wicked men who are, who are vile and corrupt, lie against this man. And it says, verse 10, set these two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, you, Naboth, didst blaspheme God. And by the way, she adds something else there. You blaspheme God and, what's your Bible read? The king, that's, that's critical as we'll see in a minute. And then carry him out and stone him that he may die. And so she's got this all planned. And she has the elders get along with him. And it's a twofold accusation. Blasphemy against God and the king. Now, several questions come to mind in the story. For me, for me anyway, that they come and she says, she says to the elders, do this. They know this is corrupt. They know this is wrong. These are the religious leaders of the community, the spiritual leaders. Why did they go along with her? Well, what, what could it tell you about them? They're just as corrupt. That could be the case. Or if, if we say that they're, they're not totally corrupt, what might their feeling be? What's, what might else be happening to them? They're, they're, yeah, hey, they're afraid. They know that she's, she's killed other people before. She's a wicked woman. And so they're afraid, or they're as corrupt as she is, or I'm going to throw a third possibility here that goes kind of to line two. Maybe they didn't like Naboth. Because they get this letter from the king, king and queen. They don't say no to murder. But Naboth had said no to the king to selling land. Naboth was far more righteous than the elders. And for some reason... Maybe it was in their mind that they don't like Naboth that much anyway because he always shows us up. I mean, it would never happen in this day, would it? 
that people don't like righteousness around them. That they would turn on them. And so maybe they weren't so upset to get this note. I don't know which one or if it's a little bit of all of these. But the point is, they went along with it. And she was so clever by ancient culture and customs, way she, the way she worded this, man, she was, she was a calculating woman. You wouldn't want to cross this gal. Remember, she is called a religious activity, a fast. Not a feast, not a celebration, but a fast. A Jewish fast she's called for. Do you remember that according to Jewish law, if somebody blasphemed God, according to Leviticus, they'd be stoned to death. Okay? Now, in in Jewish legal system at that time, even though you might be stoned to death, your property still went to your heirs. Okay, you've committed a capital offense, but your family would still keep the property. By adding the phrase, blasphemy against the king, she is doing something that by an ancient Near East culture allows her husband to take the property. Because in ancient Near East culture, if you blaspheme the king, you're a traitor. And the king has the right to the property of any traitor. So she's covered both stones. She gets him killed, plus she's done finagling to claim his inheritance. She's a calculating, manipulative woman. She's using religiosity. She's using legalese all for her personal benefit. Well, actually, for the benefit of her pouting husband. Now, you read the text, and it says that when they got the letter, you jump down a little bit, it says uh, in verse 11, the men of the city, even the elders and the nobles. Now, look at it. It's grouping. We're getting the idea from the, from the author that they all went together the, with the, who were the leaders in that city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and that was, as was written. And they proclaimed the fast. They sat Naboth on high among the people. They come in with the children of Belial. They accuse him, and they kill him. Read down the next couple verses. He's dead. The message comes back to the palace. Naboth is killed. Naboth is dead. We found him guilty. Everything is okay. And Ahab rolls out of bed with a happy face, goes down and claims the vineyard and takes over. It is at this moment, not before, which is in a critical point uh, thought in, in our message here this morning. It says, after it's all done, It came to pass in verse 16, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose and goes down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then, it says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. This is the moment, and only now is the moment that God starts acting in this text. That God takes action. As you read the next few verses, God orders Elijah to go and confront Ahab. He gives him some really pointed idea. He says, go find him in the vineyard. You're going to catch him in the very spot. Maybe he's pulling up the grapevines and planting his veggies. I don't know. But he says, arise, go down, meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to possess it. You shall speak to him. Now, here's the, here's the, this is very pointed, very blunt speech. He says, Have you killed and taken possession? You shall speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your blood, even yours. Well, the passage goes on. Elijah goes down. He meets, meets Ahab. Ahab's first response when he sees him, they haven't seen each other for ten years. Ahab looks up and he says, Oh, you found me, my enemy. Hatred. 
pure spite. And yet we talked about two weeks ago, Elijah recovered from his fear. He's willing to serve the Lord with boldness once again. He goes against this man, talks to him, and he gives him this message. And he makes it very clear. He says, I'm not the one who's the enemy here. In verse, uh, verse 20 where it says, you have sold, literally in the Hebrew, you have married yourself to evil works. You've aligned yourself in the sight of the Lord. And then he goes on, he talks about how I'm going to cut off all of your seed. None of them will even be, remain standing to urinate against the wall. Very blunt, very pointed, speaking in a way that is very, very specific, very detailed that I'm going to curse you. The message is this. You're going to experience all kinds of judgment upon you. I've had it. This is it. You're going to die. The dogs will lick up your blood. You're not even going to get this honorable burial. You're going to have dogs licking up your blood, which, you know, these are these scavenging animals. He goes on, your descendants will be cut off. There's not even going to be any of them doing normal bodily functions. They're going to be wiped out. They're going to be destroyed. And then he says, when they get destroyed, their bodies will be eaten, not buried properly, but your descendants will not be respected by having these funerals and these processions. They're going to be eaten by birds and dogs. They're going to, they're going to die just like in, in a very despicable manner. And then God even makes sure that he says Jezebel is also going to be destroyed. She's going to be killed and she's not going to be lamented over. She's not going to be given proper burial rights. In fact, the dogs will eat her. And so it's a very clear thing, and and once you catch, he says the reasons why this is coming is you have sinned, you made Israel to sin. Very clear. God, God is so pointed in this text. You have done wrong, Ahab. You sinned, and you made Israel to sin. Now, we stop and say, okay, here's the story. That's the layout of the story. But what are the lessons from it? Are the lessons, you know, profound or very clear or very well very clearly the one lesson that's in this text as well as many others is the lessons that it's wrong to steal it's wrong to take what somebody else possesses we know that we teach that to our kids we know that one of the ten commandments said do thou shalt not steal we know that in the new testament it's repeated let him that stole steal some more steal no more we know we know that stealing is wrong taking that which doesn't belong to you we know without having to go into a lot of detail, that if you and I are to take music that doesn't belong to us and copy it and violate copyright, that's stealing. If you're to record something that isn't supposed to be recorded without copyright uh, uh, approval, that's stealing. You and I know that not paying our bills to somebody that we owe the money to, it's stealing. And even if we say, well, they've got enough money already, it's stealing. It's wrong. We're not to do that. We're to pay our debts. We know that when you take answers from somebody else's test, that's stealing. We know that if you are being paid to work and you're sitting on your iPhone goofing off, that's stealing from your employer. We know that taking somebody's purity and putting pressure on that, uh, that person to have sex with you, that's stealing their purity. We know that, that taking the affections of somebody else's partner, that's stealing. We know taking products from work is stealing. We know not paying taxes is stealing, except for it's okay because the government has lots of money. No, 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 it's stealing. Not returning the tool that you borrowed. Not returning the book you borrowed. Not taking the clothes back or the music that you borrowed. That's stealing. Okay, not paying an employee or somebody that, that you hire what they deserve, what you agree to, that's stealing. We know this. We know gossip is a form of stealing, taking somebody's reputation. 
We know that Malachi says that you stole from me by not giving me the weekly offerings that you owed me, God told them, or their tithe offerings, that he said, you don't, that's stealing from me. We know that. We know that it's wrong to do those things, though every one of us, we find ourselves on the edge sometimes tempted. Okay? Let him that stole steal no more. We understand that that is very clear in this text, that God hates stealing. There are some other lessons in this text, to me, that are more challenging as a child of God. Okay? Stealing is, you know, and it may be an issue for some here. But there are some other principles that are in this text that surprise me, that catch me off guard, that aren't as clear and succinct, but they're in this text. And they kind of make me pause, and quite frankly, I was telling somebody, I'm going to be, what I'm sharing with you this morning, some of you are going to think is heresy. Your first reaction is, we shouldn't be preaching. That's not the stuff we normally preach on. Sundays we come, so we get built up, so we get encouraged. But let me share three truths that kind of catch me off guard that not everybody here will like. But they are in this text. Truth number one is this. Surprising truth is this. God does not always intervene to rescue the righteous from the evil in the world. This is so contrary to our American thinking. Our American thinking is God is always going to rescue us. Every ending of every story is happily. We think that. We think this when we pray about somebody who has cancer. Surely God's going to intervene. We think this when we hear about saints under persecution. Surely God will not allow them to be beaten. We think this, that God is, God is always going to get me out of every trial and every trouble. And even though it might be there, it's going to be very, very short. It's never going to be long-enduring, or at least it won't be life-threatening. However, now this sounds so, so anti-what we normally say. There is the reality that Naboth was the most, most righteous person in this passage. God didn't rescue him. God didn't come in and intervene. He could have. God could have sent Elijah before the, all this scheming took place. He, God could have dropped Jezebel on the spot, yes? God could have cut off that evil. God could have done something over the, in that battle in chapter 20. God could have not assisted Ahab and let him be beaten in battle. And then a new king come on the scene. But God didn't do that. God chose not to do it. There are times that God allows his people to suffer at the hands of evildoers. There are times that God even allows his children to go through great deep trials and even to the point of loss of life. We read where Jesus was speaking to his disciples at, at the halfway, first third of his ministry. He's speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Wait a minute. I, when I sign up to be a Christian, isn't everything going to go right? Isn't everything going to be hunky-dory? Isn't everything going to be all peaches and cream? No, that's not what Jesus told his disciples. He even goes on, he says, remember, this is his last night. He Remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If, you have, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Do you remember what, the world, what Jesus said about the world? In this world, you will have tribulation. Do you remember what he had the apostle Paul write? Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer opposition, persecution. 
We read that Peter writes, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. Now, I know this isn't a positive message, but Paul writes and he says, We glory in tribulations knowing that they work patience. Paul is saying God allows us to go through difficult situations. God allows death. God allows illness. God allows calamity. And it's not to destroy us, but it is to build us. It is to help us to draw closer to him. It is an opportunity for us to serve him and to be used by him and to come to the end of ourselves and rely upon him. And so we ought not question uh, question God by saying how can a loving caring God allow us to face dangers remember what he did with his own son he allowed his own son who was totally innocent of all sin of all evil he allowed him to die one of the most cruel deaths and separation so that he could bring out greater good our salvation now, that, this, isn't, this isn't one of those glowing messages that says everything will work out fine for you. But this is reality. This is exactly what the Word of God portrays at times. He portrays that God doesn't always rescue us from the fiery furnace. God doesn't always rescue us from the den of lions. There are times that the Naboths will lose their knives. Why sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't is beyond me. I don't know. I am not sovereign God, but I know this is the way God works. That God at times will allow his children to face the most horrendous situations or the most horrible people. And maybe he chooses not to rescue them in this life, but he always, he always vindicates and rewards them in the next life. In the life that counts. We read what Jesus said. Blessed are you when men revile you. Persecute you. Say all manner of evil against you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. We read where he spoke again to the people on the plain. Blessed are you when men shall hate you. When they separate from you. They reproach you for the son of man's sake. For my sake. He says rejoice. Leap for joy. For behold your reward is great in heaven. There is this aspect that's written in Scripture. If we suffer now, it is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us later on. What we go through in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years in this lifetime is nothing compared to what will be for all eternity when it's 10,000, 100,000, 50 million years. It pales in comparison because he gives us his glory, his rewards when we are faithful, even when he doesn't rescue us. For our light and temporary affliction produces us and in us an eternal glory that outweighs our troubles. Blessed is the man that remains steadfast because he's going to get the crown of life. God doesn't make life easy for us, but he wants us to be faithful to him because of the life of ease in the future. Remember, it catches us off guard. But the reality is that at times God doesn't always intervene, but we are still to remain faithful in the most difficult times. It doesn't mean our God, our God is cruel. It doesn't mean our God is impotent. It means he chooses not to rescue us at moments 
because he knows there is something bigger and better in regard to what he can do in us, through us, for us. There is another astounding truth that amazes me. I don't like this truth either, but it's fact. God doesn't always act immediately to stop the evildoers. I wish he would. I wish that Ahab and Jezebel had their payday the moment they started doing wrong against his prophets 25 years before this text. I wish that God would have taken out the Adolfs, the Hitlers, in their childhood. I think that. I wish that. That's not what God always does. Does he allow, at times, difficult times, does he even allow evil workers to have their heyday at moments. He does. That is a reality. That they have, they have opportunity. In fact, he even allows us in this room to play with at times that which is forbidden and he doesn't smack us down immediately. Now there are cases in Scripture where Ananias and Sapphira, they were wiped out the moment they brought that, that, that offering that was filled with deceit. If God, if God would strike down even today those who say one thing and do another thing, I wouldn't have stayed in church very long. I would have been in a graveyard. And I don't think I'm the only one that there's been moments where we've played the hypocrite. And in this text, he tells us that he doesn't always act immediately. In fact, the, ra- the reality is he does act. But sometimes it takes time. In fact, there is even pleasure in sin at moments for a season. That he allows people to have some of that pleasure. But it, there's going to be a time he's going to act. He makes it very clear. Now, Ahab and Jezebel, let me set the scene. They have been in rule for 25 years plus. God could have taken them out earlier, but he's let them. They had been confronted earlier, 10 years earlier. They had been confronted. And still they weren't taken out. They had even threatened Elijah's life. They had killed prophets. God didn't take them out. God says, Elijah, go back to him again. Give him another warning. Let him know. It takes time to go there. And then when Elijah comes and gives the warning, he says, you know what, Ahab? This is it. God's had enough of this. But the judgment of you dying and dogs licking your blood isn't going to happen tomorrow. In fact, he's going to let them go a few more weeks, months before judgment takes place. But judgment does take place. My, my point is this. My point is we should not confuse God's patience, God's compassion towards us, should not be misinterpreted that God approves the evil that's going on. We should not mistake that. There is a reason why God is patient with evildoers. It's talked about in Peter's epistle. The Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should. God will delay judgment at times. Not all the time. Sometimes it's very quick. Sometimes it's delayed. Why in some moments and not in others? I don't know. I'm not God and neither are you. But this much I know that God in this moment, in this text, was showing patience. He showed patience towards Ahab and Jezebel. He showed patience towards Pontius Pilate. He showed patience 
towards Herod the Great. He showed patience towards Judas. Why? I don't know. Other than he was not willing that they perish and give them an opportunity for repentance. It's the best answer you and I have. But the reality is that God will judge eventually. We read in scriptures, you be sure your sin will find you out. We read in scriptures that whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You and I can say, well, God hasn't caught me. God hasn't exposed me for looking at lewd pictures. God hasn't exposed me for stealing from my workplace. God hasn't, hasn't dealt with me and I'm, my life, and I'm still breathing. I haven't suffered any great tragedy because in my family we are not what we appear at church. We have tremendous difficulties in our home. God hasn't, hasn't struck me down, even though I have a rebellious spirit, very disrespectful to my parents. God hasn't struck me down. Do not, be, do not be confused. God's patience is not God's approval. Be sure your sin will find you out. When that happens, that's God's dealing. But he does deal with them, and we know this. We know that God deals with people even if they're in authority. Even if they're in the role of king. Remember, King Ahab, you can do whatever you want. Well, he's a little bit hesitant because he realizes he has authority, but not, not total, absolute authority. He has a little bit of smidgen of some type of moral principle that says, well, I can't take it unless we do something legal or something or another. But God deals with him. You are a king who has taken property that doesn't belong to you and you can maneuver the politics all you want. You can claim legalese all you want, but you've done wrong. You've done wrong. Even though you've gotten away from it, got away with it for years, that's it. There is going to be payday someday. Even though you cover this up with a fast and how religious this is, it's done. I'm done. I've had it. Even though others have gone along with it, the elders joined in. The nobles of the city. Very clearly he wants us to understand. Others got on board with it and it's wrong. Even though you might claim this Ahab. You might claim well I didn't personally have him killed. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Ahab is held responsible. Is he not? His wife apparently signed his name which we know. He knew what was going on. He didn't stop her and he claims the prophet's. This reminds me of a story that we talked about just a couple months ago. The story of Eli. Do you remember the high priest Eli? He had the two boys that were so wicked. And God comes and he says, I'm going to chasten you, Eli, because your son's wickedness that you didn't stop him. But the passage says he did rebuke his boys. So what was the conflict? Remember what we pointed out? That his sons would go in and take the best of the sacrifice for themselves. They would take the best of the food that was supposed to be left for God. They were, they were you know, forcing themselves upon the ladies who were coming to worship. They were very evil, corrupt people. They were called you know, sons of Belial. And Eli rebuked them. Why are you doing this? But God says, I'm holding you responsible. And part of the reason was, remember that one hidden text in, in Samuel, the second chapter, where it said this, you kick at my sacrifice, my offering, which I have commanded you. You honor your sons above me and you make yourselves fat. Eli was, was on the outward day saying, boys, you shouldn't do it while he was eating the meat that they had stolen. He was involved in it. Passively, but he was involved in it. And God held him responsible. I, I tell you what, we may think we get away with things, 
But our God sees, and there will be that cliche phrase, but real phrase, payday someday. Be sure your sin will find you out. The passage is clear that God at times, he doesn't respond immediately. He doesn't always rescue. He doesn't always chasten immediately. But this third one, this I think surprises the majority here. God is ready to extend mercy to those who genuinely repent of all their evil deeds, no matter what they've done or who they are. What would you think if when you get to heaven, one of the first people to shake your hands is Adolf Hitler? What if you get to heaven and you meet some of the greatest, most horrible people from history? And you say, they don't deserve to be here. They don't belong to be here. How is it fair that I live for the Lord my whole life, this person, he at the very last moment can have a deathbed um, conversion and call upon the Lord and he gets into heaven with me. And I've gone through all those trials and those troubles. I may have even given my life for the Lord. And this persecutor, who at the last moment prays, he gets into heaven too? Time out. Let's remember a fact. You and I don't deserve to be in heaven. None of us do. For the wages of sin is death for all of us. None of us deserve to get into heaven. And absolutely, you and I would say, Ahab does not... You, look at how the author portrays something here. The author does a masterful job. He's just told us how bad Ahab and Jezebel are. How wicked, how corrupt they are. And then he, God's going to judge them for it. But look at something he does. As he tells the story, all of a sudden the author throws in two verses. We call them verses, okay? The numbers came later. But look at down verse 25 and 26. This is an editorial comment. There was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to more wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. He did very abominably in following idols, according to all the things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast before the children of Israel. He wants us to understand Ahab is a scuzz bucket. He is the worst of worst. He wants us to know this. Ahab and Jezebel, they're bad. They're horrible. They are the epitome of evil walking the face of the earth. And then he adds the next two verses. Then he picks up the story. And it says, hey, wait a minute. It came to pass when Ahab heard those words, he rent his clothes, put sackcloth upon his flesh, fasted and lay in sackcloth, and went softly. That's called repenting of your sin. That's called all of a sudden he's having a turnabout. Now, some are going to ask. Some of you are asked the right question. Is this genuine repentance? This wicked guy, could he genuinely repent? Hey, there's a, this is why I, why I ask it. You, can die, you could a year ago. You could die a 1-900-MR-Apology and you can make all the confession you want over the phone to get rid of the guilt. You didn't have to go to the people that you offended. You didn't have to tell anybody else publicly. You could call Mr. Apology. And everything is taken care of. That's the way some people treat God at times. Is that what Ahab is doing? I don't think Ahab is doing that. I think there's a genuineness for several reasons. It says he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth. These are the normal signs of repentance in that culture. This was the, this was the elaborate display that you would do if you were repenting in that culture. Okay. 
And they were very public. They were very open. Think this through. He's putting on sackcloth and ashes. He's going about not eating. He's, he's the king. He as the king is admitting by this outward appearance that he has done wrong. As the king. Who else is seeing this? Think this through. Think this through. Who else, who else was involved with this that when he says, I've done wrong, he's condemning them as well? The elders and the nobles, right? And most of all, who's he got to live with? Yeah, I'm sure she was glad to see this outfit on him. Oh, honey, I'm so glad that you are saying we are corrupt. Yeah, you just made my day. You know, think what he had to live with. As the king with that woman, he's risking a lot. Oh, by the way, the reason that I think it's genuine, forget all those things, God took it as real. Look at verse 29. God understood this when God says to the prophet, See now how Ahab humbles himself before me. Because he humbled himself, I will not bring the evil in his days. I'm giving him a reprieve. You know, what strikes me as just amazing is that he deserved this punishment. Think this through. Think this through with me. When you look at this, he has been doing wickedness for years. Great wickedness. He has hurt people by the scores. Prophets of God, Naboth, and many others. That he attacked, took their lives. He even, in the next couple chapters, when you go into the the remainder of the book, he even returns to his old ways. How could he genuinely repent and then months later go back to his old ways? How can you do it? Are you telling me that when you repent, you never struggle again? And yet God knowing that where this guy is going, God knowing what his, his story, how it's going to end, God extends mercy to him when he genuinely repents. That's mercy. That's mercy from the throne of heaven when God knows that we repent of our sin and then we might still go out and do it again. That's mercy. We don't plan on doing it again. We don't want to do it again, but we do it again. That's mercy that God would forgive you and me. That God would say, I forgive you for losing your temper against your kids or against your siblings. And so I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to get you, you and I, or we're right with one another. And then next week, he knows you're going to do it again next week. But he forgives you. Mercy, grace. And I, at times, I struggle with it. I look and go, Ahab didn't deserve it. Ahab should have, been, should have been wiped out. How can God be merciful to people who aren't as good as us? How could God forgive a terrorist who might repent of his sins? We are far better because we're Americans. We go to church. And for sometimes it makes us stagger and stumble until we realize the truth. God is not willing that any should perish. God wants fellowship with us. God is willing to forgive us our sins even if we're as guilty as guilty can be. And you can put whatever cliche you want on that. That's mercy. That's our God. That to me is amazing grace. Do we look at it? We go, man, God is willing to forgive anyone of evil if they genuinely repent. That's a fact. We may not like it, especially when they've done the evil against us. But he's willing to forgive. 
Here's the blessing. He's willing to forgive you and me of anything. That's the blessing. (laughs) True story of evil people. One of those great persecutors of the Jewish people. Tsar Alexander III. But his wife Marie was a much more gracious individual. The story is told, and this happened more than once, but the story is told how he had seen this one prisoner that was taken and and, uh, accused of so many crimes, and he wrote on the certificate, pardon impossible to be sent to Siberia. His wife didn't think that that person deserved that great of punishment. It wasn't that wicked of a crime. It wasn't, it was just something that was minor in the story. One of the stories attached is that the man was a beggar. He had no food. He just stole because his kids needed something and out of desperation. So she changed her husband's order. She just moved one comma and it read this, pardon, impossible to be sent to Siberia. God removes, moves the comma from our lives. That's grace. So what do I do with all this? Well, what I do is I need to remember, we need to, you, me, avoid all forms of stealing and theft. That's an obvious. We do right no matter what the outcome. We serve God no matter what the outcome. Even if he doesn't rescue us from the trials, the troubles, the dangers, the evil around us, we still serve him. What do I learn? We remember that God will deal with us if we do wrong. It might not happen today, it might not happen tomorrow, but it will happen. If we harbor and insist on doing wrong, there will be a time where our sin will find us out. We should repent when we do wrong while we have the opportunity. We take the moment. We take the opportunity. We don't say, I'll do it later. We do what Ahab did. You repent at that moment no matter what others say about you. What others do, what others might think about you, you repent. You might be the king of the household. You might be the king of the team. You repent. You do the spiritual sackcloth and ashes. We know as well that what we should do more than anything is give God thanks for his mercy. Because there's moments we don't feel like it. There's a true story that comes out of Washington, D.C., and we all know that there's a lot of corruption and stuff out of Washington, D.C. But let's go back to some of, some, some of you older ones remember. Let's go back to the days of Richard Nixon, that heroic figure from American history. Right? When we think of Richard Nixon, what do we all think of? We think of corruption, Watergate, it's right there. Hubert Humphrey, who he ran against in the elections in 68... Uh, yeah, 68, when he ran against him, they had been political opponents. Humphrey dies. They're holding uh, at the Capitol, they're holding some vigil there for Humphrey's body in, in state. And several of the different peoples come in. You're, this is now in the years when Jimmy Carter was president. Several people are coming in, and one of those who visited the rotunda at that point was Richard Nixon. When he came into the room, the reporters reported that nobody but nobody went over to him. He was still the anathema of Washington, D.C. Even people from outside the United States wanted nothing to walk, to walk up to that man. The president at the time was Jimmy Carter. He came walking into the room, kind of glanced around, and he saw Richard Nixon by himself with just his associate who came with him, and he made a beeline for him. Carter walked up to him, stuck out his hand, and he shook his hand, and he said, Welcome home, Mr. President. Did Nixon deserve it? No. Was that an act of grace by Carter to Nixon? Yeah. Yeah. 
You know what? The act of grace is not the President of the United States, but it's going to be Jesus Christ putting out his arms and saying to you and me, who are as guilty as guilty can be, welcome home, my son. That's an act of grace. That's the Jesus we worship today.